Welcome to the Unbiased Investing Podcast. Today with me, as always, Michael Baker, myself, Jesse Ross. Um, before we get started, just a quick disclaimer that nothing said on this podcast should be taken as financial advice. Everything discussed is our own opinion, and both Michael and myself have financial interests or may have financial interests in the securities discussed on this podcast. Kicking it off, Michael, it's been a pretty crazy week here in the stock market. Uh, obviously, Wall Street sure has community been. has uh, taken over with their uh, GameStop propaganda, I may say, along with some of the other companies. It seems like they're just attacking short sellers out there. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, man. I mean, first of all, is definitely one of the most, I definitely had a good time a really fun time just sitting on the sidelines watching it all kind of unfold. Um, personally, I didn't get invested into it. I kind of, you know, I wanted to watch and see what happens, but um, I guess the thing that really stood out to me is like, you know, I kind of wanted to look back and see how it all started. And the guy who kind of started it all, his name's called deep value on Reddit. And I kind of looked back into his history and, just an average guy working out of his house as a hobby. He kind of day trades and he invested what I found crazy. He invested in this company two years ago, GameStop. So the company was pretty beaten up and he saw some value there. And I mean, I, it's just pretty crazy that this wasn't, didn't all happen like last week. He's been kind of building this, his position over the last two years. And so I kind of looked back at like when the option volume kind of started spiking was more in like June of last year, which if you were kind of following that, you could have maybe seen that something was going on, but yeah, I mean, overall, it's pretty crazy. It's changed into, it's turned into something, I guess that he never expected would happen. Like he didn't, he wasn't trying to start a revolution or anything. Like he literally just saw value in buying this company, a similar approach to, you know, value investors, right? Mm-hmm. Classics. So I think some background for listeners is he invested about what, 200,000 total, I think was his net position. And he turned it into at the peak was $44 million. And I don't know if he's taken profits yet. I don't think he has. I think he's still holding pretty much the entire position. But um, obviously this has caused a lot of media attention over the last week to two weeks. But the important thing to note is that this has been going on for almost a full year now, uh, in his case, two years. But uh, me, when I looked back on it, obviously, Michael Burry, who is famous for the big short and shorting the housing bubble in 2008, um, on his filing for his investment fund, they actually took a massive position in GameStop throughout the summer after the coronavirus dip. Yeah, And that position they built up and they took a lot of, uh, he saw it as a massive value play. Uh, Michael Burry did. And yeah, yeah. I mean, and, I'm surprised it just took this long to really like catch people's attention. Cause like, well, I mean, there's a few spikes. There was June kind of 2020. There was October I saw. And then it really kind of last week, January 15th kind of started going wild. So Yeah, so here, I'm going to pull up the chart quickly. So let's take a look here. So I believe this company, GameStop, fell from, you know, a market value way back in the day, uh, like 2016, about $50 in value. 
and yeah. investors started hedge funds and institutions realized that you know physical game locations was not a good place uh, not a good business model as everything was moving digital yeah. and they started shorting this company and they clearly made a ton of profits shorting it down from $50 all the way down to when coronavirus uh, took over. I think it, it bottomed around a dollar. Let me see. In April, April 2nd, it bottomed, yeah, about just under $3. So they shorted it down from $50 to down to $3. And they made a lot of money on the way. Now, short, the short that, makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it was a reasonable short for sure. Yeah. The problem is the short interest got extremely high. And so at this point, famous investors, Michael Burry, they accumulated their positions in here and started realizing, you know, there's some value. And I believe Michael Burry's position was this place has a ton of retail locations that hold value in malls and all that stuff. Like just the real estate is what he thought they could sell for more than the company was worth. Yeah. And he thought they could liquidate the company for more if it went bankrupt. So that's the reason he was buying shares. And then there started to become this idea that they might be able to turn around their business by actually going digital with their platform instead of simply just being a physical location, as well as the new gaming cycle coming on for the, the new Xbox and the PS5 being released. Um, so obviously, uh, you see here throughout September, I believe is when it got hyped up on wall street. That's the famous Reddit forum. And you see this massive incline from $4 a share all the way up over $20 a share in three months to December. And there was this big idea that this earnings call in December would cause this short squeeze, knowing that 140% of the available shares had been shorted. Um, obviously, that was not the case. It dipped down that day from uh, $18, $16.94 and opened the next day under $14 because the earnings call didn't go very well. Yeah. Um, however, after that, Ryan Cohen, um, Ryan Cohen, the, one of the founders of Chewy, which is basically your uh, Amazon for pet supplies. Yeah. He joined the board who was also bullish on GameStop and decided that he's going to help them run their e-commerce strategy. That news itself obviously sent the stock up some more, driving the price up, forcing shorts to cover. And as shorts started covering and the price went up and up, all the, all, all the other Wall Street bets people that had missed out on it started to pile in, driving up the price higher and higher, right? And that yeah. gets us basically to where we are today, where the price is trade, the, the closing price uh, on the last day the market was open there, January 29th, was $325. Now, where, where do you think it goes from here, Michael? Yeah, honestly, I mean, this... It's kind of learn good learning experience for everybody that you can't time the market. Uh, you can't really predict the market as well, right? I feel bad for a lot of people that got on pretty late and stock went down like 60% in like 90 minutes the one day and just got burnt. But like my kind of prediction is there's still some shorts that have to be covered. 
And theoretically, as long as people hold their long positions, the stock could keep going up. So eventually it's going to be a bad ending. I think once everybody kind of gets out of it, the stock has to crash. And that's just, that's just the reality of the situation. But as yeah, far so, as, so that's yeah. something that scares me there is like, as long as they keep holding, the price yeah. can keep going up basically infinitely because the only way shorts can cover if no one is selling yeah. is they have to buy from other shorts, which are again, exactly. shorting the stock. So it could go to infinity. But the problem with that is how do those shareholders realize that gain? Like all these yeah. gains are just unrealized sitting in an account in order for them to cash out, they need to sell their shares. And yeah. at that point, it's going to fall right back to $20. Like, Exactly. I think it's going to be, I would say by July, it's going to be under 50. It's probably going to be down in the $20 range again. This isn't a great business. No. Yeah. So Jesse Livermore on Twitter has a good, good tweet here. He says, if the stock is headed back down to where it was pre-squeeze and all the buyers who bought then agree to make no money on this, then it's theoretically possible for all the subsequent buyers to get out without losses by selling to the shorts. But the chances of that happening are pretty slim. Yeah. And I mean, again, you can't time the market. But one thing I wanted, he also went over kind of a misconception around the short interest being over 100%, which I want to mention. Um, so that's based on outstanding shares. Um, whereas the real calculation, you should be looking at the calculation of the float. So he explains it pretty well here. He says, suppose there's one share stock and you own it. I borrow and sell to another investor. So I'm short, you're long, the other investor is long. So the number of shares shorted, my single share as a percentage of issued shares, which is beginning with your single share is 100%. But there are two long positions in the market that I can buy back from. You mm -hmm. got yours and the other investor. So, exactly. um, so every yeah. shorted share actually does create a new long share to be bought back at some point. Yeah, but the total number of shares short as a percentage actually in the market is only 50%. Can't be ever over 100% because every, every seller needs a buyer, right? Mm -hmm. so there's, so there's just a misconception on that, but. If, if, if the short interest is 100% of the outstanding, or of the shares outstanding, it's yeah. actually only 50% of the float in circulation. Exactly. Basically what you're getting at. Yeah. No, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. But I just wanted to mention that. No, for sure. Uh, I think that's very reasonable to mention is that's a common misconception. Now what scares me here is who gets burned? Obviously these hedge funds are going down. They're losing a lot of money. Uh, yeah. Melvin capital is, you know, having liquidity problems to cover their margin calls. And it's yeah. actually driving down the entire market because they have to sell off their long assets yep. just to cover uh, their shorts. Yeah. Other hedge funds bailing them out too, which is pretty. Mm -hmm. um, but what's scary to me is that, you know, my ex-girlfriend talked to me about GameStop. My grandma's talking to me about GameStop. Everyone's talking to me about GameStop. And these are the people that are buying at this $300 range thinking it's going to a thousand tomorrow. And it yeah. very well might, but when it goes to a thousand tomorrow, they are not going to take their money off the table. They're going to think it's going to 10,000. 
and they're going to hold until July when it's back down to $20 and they lost 90% of their investment. And it's sad because these are people's first time getting into the market on all this media attention and all this hype. And then they're going to think the stock market is rigged against them and they're never going to invest again. Yeah. And I mean, the payoff for the risk right now is not even worth it. So I mean, it just, at the end of the day, it comes back to just doing your own own due diligence before you make an investment decision. Um, I personally, I just never follow, you know, follow a herd of people, you know, going on a stock, right? Like if you want to be the guy who is the early guy in there kind of orchestrating this, right? Otherwise you just can't predict what's going to happen next. So exactly. The people that the people that are making the money are the ones that were there from the beginning. Um, and they're going to do very well on this, but they're offloading onto these people that are going to get literally AMC is another one, uh, that they're pumping up here up from $3 to a high $20 last week. AMC makes sense. The one I didn't get was Nokia. Well, Nokia is going into software and So yeah, Nokia went very high as well. It went parabolic from four dollars to they a just peak of, Yeah, there wasn't a large short yeah. interest there, but the volume of trades on Nokia one day, I think it was on Wednesday, went up to like over a billion. Yeah. So right here, the volume is one point one billion. Yeah. If you look at before this, uh, a week prior, it was thirty million. So that's Insane. thirty, like a thirty-five x in trading volume. <laughs> yeah, I've never oh. seen. That. Yeah, and then they're doing BlackBerry um, yeah. up from $7.50 to a high of almost bath, $30. Yeah. yeah, there's lots. So, I mean, I think I'd like to tell everyone uh, to stay away from these stocks for sure. Yeah, I mean, you just have to at this point. I wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. I mean, I'm not on either to... side here. I don't think yeah. you should short the stock either because uh, there's just too much risk involved. And this is not something you, you know, trade on in your TFSA or your, you know, long-term environment or retirement fund, right? Yeah. Like if you want to get on something like this, you got to have a separate account where you have literally money that you would spend otherwise and you don't care about losing it. Yeah. If you're doing it for gambling. entertainment, if you're just gambling, gambling. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I agree yeah. with that thesis. Uh, one thing, other thing we could talk about this is kind of Robin Hood. Um, oh yeah. So it made me look into what are clearing houses. And so I guess what Robin hid, the reason why they restricted trades on GMME is I guess they, here's kind of what, where clearinghouses come into play. So if there's a sharp rise in the price of any security, this raises um, the potential to have decline just as fast. So it adds a lot of risk of, you know, collateral and margin calls. So when a firm has a huge imbalance of buy orders, it's obligation to pay cash skyrockets. So Robinhood had to basically raise money and tap into their credit facilities to basically cover these potential obligations. And so I'm not sure, like it's, they definitely handle it. They could have handled it a lot better. Um, I'm not sure if it's in their fine print that, you know, in a situation where they're like this, um, maybe they have to put restrictions on trading a stock just because of basic, you know, risk management purposes. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of how I think about it. Like, if everybody, if there was a chat and everybody knew Kansas City was going to win the Super Bowl, and so 
everybody's going to Vegas, Betway, Bodog, all these apps to put all these bets in. And they see like, they got to, these are payouts. They got to eventually cover these obligations, right? So you could think of a, a company like Bodog who only has whatever, I don't know how much money they have to, you know, cover this, but they'll have to raise more money potentially. So eventually they'll have to maybe restrict just for risk management purposes. So mm-hmm. I can so, see where Robin's coming from, but yeah, I mean, yeah. So, different crazy so I think what you're getting at is that there was this idea that they shut down Robin hood or Robin hood traders ability to buy the stock so they could only sell to bail out the hedge funds and help the hedge funds when realistically what was going on was that they didn't have the cash to pay out these positions. Yeah. Right. So the fact that they didn't have the cash to pay it out, they just had to freeze it and say, listen, if you're whatever's going on with this stock, we're not going to be able to pay everyone out on our, if you withdraw this money. And for that reason, they basically shut down the stock. Yeah. And they actually just announced today that they're putting restrictions on all kinds of different stocks, which is pretty crazy to me, but, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space. I've been diving deep into the miners, which we'll talk about later, but I'd like to talk about this article, uh, posted by Ray Dalio's, um, fund Bridgewater and Associates. Okay, so this article was posted two days ago. We're recording this on Saturday. So this was on Thursday, January 28th uh, by Ray Dalio, who, if our listeners do not know, is a famous investor, like levels of Warren Buffett, like probably top five investors of all time uh, with Bill Ackman, Peter Lynch, um, lots of those guys. So uh, these are his views on Bitcoin. He did mention it in this article as digital gold is what he referenced it as. And uh, one note to one point is when he says Bitcoin throughout this article, he means any and all cryptocurrencies. He doesn't understand the space enough to differentiate between all the different cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, all the stable coins that are going around. So I recommend to all of our listeners to go to uh, Bridgewater Associates website and look at this article, uh, read through it. I'm going to just mention a couple of quotes here uh, from this article. So uh, the first quote I have from Ray Dalio is he mentions, I believe Bitcoin is one hell of an invention. To have invented a new type of money via a system that is programmed into a computer and that has worked for around 10 years, and is rapidly gaining popularity as both a type of money and a storehold of wealth is an amazing accomplishment. So in that sentence, it really seems like Redalio is coming around on the idea that Bitcoin is a store of wealth, kind of like gold and silver have been for hundreds of years. So then his next quote goes on and mentions, there aren't many alternative gold-like assets at this time of rising need for them because of all the debt and money creations that are underway and will happen in the future. Later on, he continues with, it seems to me that Bitcoin has succeeded in crossing the line from being a highly speculative idea, could well not be around in short order 
to probably being around and probably having some value in the future. So he doesn't say if it's undervalued or overvalued, but he's saying he used to have this doubt that it would, you know, it was a bubble that would last for a couple of years. And now he's saying it's around for the long term. He doesn't know what value it's going to be at, how to value it, but it's going to be here. It's around to stay. Third quote coming from that article, um, looking ahead, it's reasonable to expect the infrastructure around Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more generally will continue to evolve and mature. So all the miners and all the finance app and finance apps and decentralized finance, he thinks that's going to continue to evolve, which is, you know, that's a space that we're definitely looking into. We're trying to find where the value is in Bitcoin, not just the asset, but what other services are going to be involved with Bitcoin. Another quote here talking about additional cryptocurrencies, and he's talking about the risk of Bitcoin, um, which he views as the biggest risk, is that he mentions, I assume that better ones will come along and displace this one, because that is the way of evolution for everything works. New ways of doing things and new things always have and always will replace old ways of doing things and old things. Since the way of Bitcoin works is fixed, it won't be able to evolve. And I presume that a better alternative will be invented and pass it by. I see that as a risk. For those reasons of limited, the limited supply argument isn't as true as it may appear. Example, if Blackberries were in a limited supply, they still wouldn't be worth much because they were replaced by competitors that were more advanced. So he's saying, you know, Blackberries used to be the hype and then iPhone completely destroyed them. It doesn't matter if they only sold a thousand Blackberries, they still would be worthless today because no one would want them, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily, he's saying the supply argument of Bitcoin kind of goes out the window if something better comes along. Right, yeah, it makes sense. Mm. So that was a good uh, point because the number one argument for Bitcoin as well, there's only going to be 21 million of them. Right. And he's saying, well, there'll be 21 million Bitcoins, but what about the next coin that comes around if it's better? Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty good uh, insight from Ray Dalio. The last quote I have from Ray Dalio mentions to me, Bitcoin looks like a long duration option on a highly unknown future that I could put an amount of money in that I wouldn't mind losing about 80% of. That is what Bitcoin looks like to this non-expert. I am eager to be corrected and learn more. On the other hand, believe me when I tell you that I myself and my colleagues at Bridgewater are intentionally focusing on alternatives as a storehold of wealth. So he's saying, you know, this thing could fall 80%, but he definitely sees it as a valuable storehold of wealth in the future. And his massive, massive fund is looking at, you know, utilizing Bitcoin as a part of their strategy. Yeah. So I don't know. I think as more and more institutions are adopting Bitcoin, and I think they are right now, and they're maybe just not telling their clients until they've actually got a decent sized position. Um, 
then then the adoption is going to just accelerate and everyone's going to be left in the dust. So I think the real risk of of cryptocurrency is not owning a small amount. I think like you have to own some. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's cuz it's just going to drive the price up more and more so yeah. as more companies adopt it. So I wouldn't say to put 50% of your net worth in it. I mean, no. I'd say under keep it under 10 because if you lose 10% of your net worth, that's going to suck. Yeah. Depends where you are in life. But I mean, if thir- in 30 years, if the bull case for Bitcoin works out and it's all we really use and talk about, right? And it is the major storehold of wealth and overcomes gold in that aspect. Um, the risk right now is not having some. Yeah, absolutely. I personally, yeah, I personally started just putting 10% in. It's obviously increased in value, but I'm not really dollar cap, dollar cost averaging or anything like that. But you're right. Like the future of like digital wallets, you know, we might be using Bitcoin to make purchases down the road. So if you don't have any exposure to it, then it's just, yeah, you're going to be left in the dust. Okay. So moving on uh, with the Bitcoin idea, obviously I've been paying a lot of attention to the cryptocurrency space and most of my attention has went to the Bitcoin miners, which most people do not understand. So the miners actually are what keep the blockchain secure. They process all the transactions that go on with Bitcoin. And in doing so, they get rewarded in actual Bitcoin. And that's how they make their money. And that's what keeps the whole system secure. So I've been digging into a lot of the miners over the last two months, I would say. I've probably spent 100 hours going through financial reports and um, their MD&As, listening to earnings calls and just the strategy behind uh, the Bitcoin mining philosophy. And what people don't understand, I see as a very common misconception, is that when when the price of Bitcoin doubles for uh, the actual asset, people think, oh, the miners are making double, right? That's not the case. It's very complex because the actual difficulty to solve the block increases, which makes their profits go down. But as more and more transactions happen, then the miner, the transaction fee, this bonus that they get awarded actually skyrockets. So I'll share my screen. So this is a little website I use to uh, track the profitability of, of uh, Bitcoin mining along with some of the other cryptocurrencies. And as you can see, the price of Bitcoin is currently $34,000. And um, it talks about a lot of different information here that you probably don't need to worry about. But the one thing I want to discuss is the mining profitability. So... I like to use the 30-day simple moving average to show how, uh, my, how profitable miners are. The most recent uh, earnings call we have for most of the miners um, is Q3 of 2020, which happened from you know June to September of 2020. And so as you can see here, the 30-day moving average of Bitcoin mining was around 10 cents per terahash second uh, per day. So you don't really need to understand what that means, but the hash rate is basically how much processing power these mining companies are using. Um, 
the important thing to notice is that since the price of Bitcoin has went up from, you know, $10,000 to $35,000, so three and a half times, the profitability of these miners um, went up from, you know, that nine cent range and is currently up around 25 cents per terahash. So they've increased their, the price that they can um, make off of a Bitcoin by two and a half times and their cost of actually producing that Bitcoin has not changed. So their earnings, let's say originally when Bitcoin was $10,000 a coin and they mined it for $5,000 a coin, their profit margin, their gross margin was about 50%, right? Yeah. Now, although the difficulty increased, it only increased by, you know, 15% over the last quarter. Um, that makes their cost of mining go up by about 15%. So from 15,000, let's say it's, you know, almost 6,000 now, but they're selling that for 30,000 or more. So their margins went from 50% gross margin to 80% gross margin. Wow. So that means their actual earnings per share is not going to just double like the price of Bitcoin. It's going to 5x, right? Like, yeah. So I don't know. In the bull market, Bitcoin transaction fees and profitability goes through the roof because everyone is trying to get these miners right now, these mining chips that they use. And they are sold out till the end of 2021. Like there's a couple companies that provide them. Yeah. And every one of these miners has like thousands and thousands on order. Um, Mara Marathon Group, they, uh, they, they, I think they're waiting on 90,000 miners right now. And they're expected to get them throughout June to June of 2021 to the end of the year. And at the end of that, they'll be the biggest miner, well, the biggest publicly traded miner in the world. Um, so I just have a, like, I have a question. I don't know if you've looked into this, but like, cause they do say there's limited supply. So what happens to these miners if the supply just maximizes or maxes out? Okay. So that's, that's good. Um, so what happens is the supply is expected to run out in 21 in year 2140, I believe it might be 2160 or 2180 can't remember but the important thing is it's over 120 years away now how does that work is there's currently 18 million bitcoins in circulation and the hard cap is 21 million every four years the block reward that gets rewarded for these miners solving um the block gets cut in half so it decreases exponentially as every four years and the block, that block reward is given out every 10 minutes. So there's a puzzle that's very difficult to solve. And it's based on how many people are trying to solve it that actually allows the, um, 
that will determine how long it gets taken to solve. And if that happens faster than 10 minutes, because the goal for Bitcoin is to have it solved every 10 minutes, if it happens faster than 10 minutes, the puzzle is actually self-adjusting and will increase its difficulty. Therefore, uh, as the network um, has a higher hash rate, which is that computing power again, the puzzle actually gets more difficult for the miners to solve and it's self-regulating. Again, if that works the other way, if Bitcoin mining becomes unprofitable because the puzzle is too hard to solve, well then the puzzle will self-adjust and actually decrease its difficulty so that people want to mine it again because that is what creates the network to be secure. Right. Yeah. So every four years, which is about the exact same time we see this massive bull cycle, it comes about four to six months after that happening occurs. And that's because the supply of Bitcoin gets cut in half. And so the, I guess the, the, the new supply coming to market gets cut in half. And then the price of Bitcoin skyrockets because miners say, we're not going to sell it if it's not profitable for us. So yeah. they quit selling it and the price goes through the roof. And that's what we saw this year. This is what we saw in 2017. And that's what we saw in 2013, four years before it. Got it. And uh, there's, there's some interesting models that this follows and this works for gold and silver as well, where you take the amount of uh, the amount of the asset in circulation, as well as the amount coming to market, and you can scale its growth. And basically, every four years, um, Bitcoin 10x's in value when the market gets cut in half, the supply gets cut in half. Yeah, and it's been following that trend since its inception. Makes sense. Makes sense. It's definitely hard to fall for the average person, but yeah, I guess what are the key takeaways from it? Like, the key takeaway is buy and hold. Don't yeah. try and don't buy and sell and be yeah. worried about the price. Keep a small portion of your net worth in it, and when it's falling maybe add more, maybe just use a dollar cost averaging approach and buy a hundred dollars every week until you have a position that you're comfortable with, or, you know, buy when on days when it's down 10%, Bitcoin's a very volatile asset yeah. and it can fall 10% in a day. Those are the days where we should be adding, right? Falls Absolutely. another 10%, buy some more. Just don't overexpose yourself and don't sell. Just hold on and, over the long term, we've seen the trend. It has phenomenal returns. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, man. Any closing comments from your end, Michael? No, anything I think like you explained it pretty well. I guess anything I'm looking at, I guess I'm looking into how it's going to be integrated into like payment systems and stuff like that. So yeah, I know, so I know Square and PayPal have got to it. I'm also following this company. I recently actually, I guess, full disclosure here, I invested in this company, but they're called Loop Insights and they have a payment contactless payment processing system that 
plugs into current POS systems, so point of sale systems. So it's a plug and play unit. And they recently just integrated Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum right into their system. So eventually it's going to be a wild or a widely adopted thing into, you know, being able to use Bitcoin and Ethereum for purchases. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm looking at as far as investments. And I'll give you a little bit more insight into that, but uh, the visa earnings call was last week and they actually referred to uh, Bitcoin as well in it saying that they're looking to get involved. So when yeah. Visa makes the announcement that they're getting into Bitcoin, uh, what do you think is going to happen with the price? Of uh, the price of Bitcoin? It's going to well, go yeah, up. just and, and probably Visa stock too. I mean, yeah, we know it doesn't well, fundamentally change a lot, but yeah. uh, people like news like that. They like the hype. So yeah. I'd say get in Demand before. For it skyrockets it, yeah. But no, that's interesting there with Loop. Um, yeah, the, the processing, uh, the finance part of it, uh, it's, you should look into something called Lightning Network. There's a lot of them, and it's kind of what runs on it. They normally run on Ethereum, but that's more so for the day-to-day transaction. Um, yeah. So, I don't know. It's definitely a cool space. It's a new space, it's, and it's yeah. very interesting to read into. Yeah. Yeah, and if if listeners want to learn more about this, I definitely recommend checking out Arc Invest. They just recently uh, released their Big Ideas report for 2021, and one of the trends they go over in this is both Bitcoin as well as digital wallets. So definitely recommend checking that out. And as we all know, Arc Invest is headlining in the media right now. Kathy yeah. Wood and her team has been probably the best investment fund on disruptive technology for the last, you know, five years. And they were the biggest bulls on Tesla. And that's basically what made them billions and billions of dollars. So definitely check out their website. They have a lot of good content. Yeah. If you like investing in that space, kind of disruptive technologies, definitely, definitely follow Arc Invest. Perfect. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap it up here then. Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, hopefully we'll see you again in the future. Um, You can follow us on Instagram at unbiased investing. You can check out our YouTube uh, also at unbiased investing for personal finance and investing content, as well as these podcasts with some visual Uh, and then final reminder that everything said on this podcast is not, financial financial advice for entertainment purposes these are our own opinions and we may have financial interest in the companies discussed on the podcast yeah and also stay tuned for a blog blog coming out soon that's going to be called unbiased investing where you can also get some good content so perfect